joining with us again this episode as we dive a little deeper into the subspecialty day presentations at the upcoming POSNA meeting in Dallas. We're very excited to have a couple of the moderators from the neuromuscular scoliosis session join us and look forward to talking with them and a couple of the authors of the papers. This is Josh Holt coming to you from the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital and I'll welcome to the program later Dr. Sumit Garg from the Children's Hospital Colorado as well as Dr. Craig Everson from University Orthopedics at Brown University. The two of them are the moderators of the upcoming neuromuscular session and have selected a couple of their favorite abstracts, which will be discussed at the session. And we'll have a chance to welcome those authors to the program to discuss their manuscripts in a little more detail, get some more firsthand insight into their studies, their results, and some of the practice-changing evidence that they're presenting in their abstracts. The first author that will join us on the program today is Dr. Vishal Sarwahi from Cohen Children's Medical Center in Hyde Park, where we will have a chance to talk with him regarding his abstract, Ambulatory Neuromuscular Scoliosis Patients Have Similar Rates of Infection, Perioperative Complications, and Revision to Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis Patients. In this study, the authors retrospectively reviewed neuromuscular scoliosis patients and compared them with adolescent idiopathic scoliosis patients undergoing posterior spinal fusion with pedicle screw fixation from 2005 through 2018. Specifically, they looked at neuromuscular scoliosis patients in GMFCS 1 through 3 subclassification who were able to ambulate without assistance. Their study cohort included 48 patients in the neuromuscular scoliosis subgroup and 158 patients in the AIS subgroup. Results of their study showed that estimated blood loss, postoperative transfusions, perioperative complications, DVT, revisions, mortality were all similar between the two groups. They did show differences between the neuromuscular scoliosis patients and AIS patients in terms of fusion levels, fixation points, pelvic fixation, anesthesia and surgery time, ICU stays, as well as hospital stays. They also found that fewer patients were extubated in the operating room with neuromuscular etiologies. The authors conclude that, although longer fusion levels, surgical time, hospital stay, with lower extubation rates are seen in ambulatory patients with neuromuscular scoliosis, the infection rate, revisions, overall complications, and radiographic outcomes were similar in this cohort of patients to the AIS population. These findings suggest that neuromuscular scoliosis patients who are ambulating can expect surgical outcomes quite comparable to AIS patients, providing significant help in preoperative discussions with families regarding their risks and potential complications of surgery. So without further ado, um, we'll jump right into our conversation of the topic at hand, and I'll let the moderators take over and ask a few questions to our authors, and we'll keep rolling from there. So Dr. Garg and Dr. Eberson, the show is yours. Right. So, Dr. Shawari, this is really a, a very interesting paper, and you know, maybe maybe uh, almost surprising in your results. What was the impetus for this study? Uh, that's a very deep question. <laughs> so, now for years, you know, as guys who treat scoliosis, the three of us, uh, we kind of, if you really look back at the way neuromuscular scoliosis uh, has been managed, 
and the outcomes, uh, the complication rates are very high, almost 60-70% have been reported. But we all know that neuromuscular is not just one single group. There are multiple um, diagnoses and uh, variety of diseases and disorders are that are included. And even in that dis those disorders, there's a whole a slew of you know, mild to severe involvement of the disease itself. Um, and all that being pulled together in a large study, for, for many years I just wondered, you know, is there a difference between, let's say, a GMFCS1 versus a GMFCS5? And we all know a severely spastic, non-ambulatory kid with multiple uh, comorbidities is probably at a higher risk. So over the past few years, we have looked at and we realized that you know, kids who came, come to us with a less severe disorder, and usually these are the ambulatory ones, have a little bit better outcome compared to the ones who are much severely involved. And not just the outcomes, the entire experience of surgery, how you position them, to how you take care of them, communication and all of that, is, is a challenge the more severely they, they are involved. And then, you know, there were some studies that came out in the interim where uh, we found, which directly or indirectly suggested that ambulation or other non-ambulation or lack of ambulation uh, is a problem, uh, has higher uh, complication rate. So we basically decided to see if that is really true. And uh, in a sense, we, found, we suggested that maybe looking at ambulation itself um, may help tease them apart. And that's our concern. Well, it's, it's really that it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, looking at your, your paper in the, in the initial purpose, you, you mentioned multiple diagnoses. And, and in your method, you, you know, you talked about the GMFCS scale, which I assume those patients all had cerebral palsy. Did, did you have a variety of other diagnoses that you looked at, or are we just specifically talking about cerebral palsy? No, that's a, that's a great point. So this is multiple diagnoses included. Since GMCS is, is essentially you know, ambulation-based, it's a motor-based system, motor system-based. So uh, we utilize, there's a study that came out a few years ago by Towns et al. Uh, I, can, I can supply the reference, which actually analyzed a lot of papers that have utilized GMFCS in a non-cerebral palsy patient groups. They actually criticized combining GMFCS if it is being used to measure outcomes. But if it's, it's being used to measure or compare ambulation, they said that is actually a fairly uh, valid way of combining it. And since GMFC is the most common way and a uh, common classification system and the most prevalent uh, and known to us, uh, we just chose that um, to combine one, two, and three as some sort of ambulation and four and five as others. And that's how uh, we uh, use, utilize for other diagnoses also. But um, majority of the patients in this group are cerebral palsy. I'm wondering um, the, how how far out are you tracking these kids after surgery? The results section discusses perioperative complications within 30 days as being similar between the two groups, mm -hmm. uh, looking at things like infection, DVT, and revisions. Mm -hmm. um, do you have data at 90 days or two years? Do do things oh, yeah. change as you watch these patients longer? Yeah, so all patients in this uh, in the study are minimum two-year you Were you able to get a sense, you know, you mentioned in both groups, the neuromuscular group obviously had a higher incidence of longer fusions or fusions to the pelvis. Were you able to follow how many of those patients remained ambulatory at the two-year follow-up? 
Uh, yes. So almost all of them were uh, they maintained it. So that's a very good question. It's a very tricky question. You know, and this this may be a, a part of the bias based on the surgeons. Patients who are ambulatory, I'm very hesitant in going and locking the pelvis down. Although there are studies which do suggest that it doesn't impact that, I'm still very hesitant uh, in locking the pelvis down. So I will stop uh, either at S1 or L5. And um, so far, I've been lucky with that. Now, tell me, these patients were very similar, it says, in their age, their sex, their preoperative radiographic deformity. I can kind of understand why the anesthesia time would be longer if they have more medical needs, but I'm curious as to why the surgery time is longer for the neuromuscular patients, given that otherwise they're very similar in terms of their deformity. So, great point. So, uh, in comparison, the ambulatory ones had only a median of 13 levels used, so fewer fixation points, and uh, a median of about 11 or 12 uh, in the AI. So just adding a couple of more levels probably time at least. But if you match them, when we match them based on gender, age, uh, levels used, and pre-op, that length of surgery was not significant between AIS and the ambulatory ones. Do you, do you use similar indications for surgery for your ambulatory neuromuscular patients as you do for AIS? Yes. Indications are similar, but uh, I mean, I err more uh, on the side of uh, using them longer rather than in AIS to trying to save levels. Right. But in terms of the decision, is it, you know, we think about progressive curvatures past about 45 degrees in general is Yes. Pretty well established as yeah. an indication for AIS. Yeah. Do you do you use that that figure of about 45 to 50 for neuromuscular as well? Yes, unless and let somebody like a, a Duchenne who's presenting with a very you know, much of the arm, which is not uh, there are not many of them in this study. Though. Are there any differences you have in terms of post-operative care, dressing management, or or closure type for your neuromuscular patients versus your AIS patients? Another great question. So earlier in the study, the first five years, all the closures were done by us, but in the last, in the past five years, uh, we have almost switched to uh, closures being done by plastic surgery. We do a very layered closure mobilizing local muscle flaps to, to obliterate all the dead space, uh, especially in the neuromuscular scoliosis. And we were, uh, you know, we were doing fine, but in the last year, there was, uh, there were two patients who had an infection, and we realized that uh, you know, the drains were probably coming out too low. So, especially, you know, in these patients who are incontinent, so we have decided to bring the, drain, the drains higher up, more in the, you know, the waist area rather than down the pelvis area. And uh, all my neuromusculars, we, I actually put in a, a giant eye mask to see them, uh, so that if the patients have a diarrhea or have a diaper, uh, it doesn't leak into my uh, wound area. You're using plastic surgery even for these ambulatory neuromuscular patients? Well, I mean, we are, we are using just to standardize it, but I've been... Okay. Uh, I get, uh, yeah, I take your point. I mean, I, I would have preferred just to do it for non-ambulatory just because they're more challenging, but just to keep it standardized. Yeah, no, that's interesting. We've, we've trended at our place uh, in my practice uh, for fusions to pelvis for neuromuscular, diapered patients, the GMFCS 4-5. Uh, I have gone to working with plastics for the closure and have... You know, there's not an, I don't have enough numbers to publish anything, but certainly seen a, a marked decline uh, in wound complications and infection. I have not been using them for, you know, ambulatory neuromuscular patients as, uh, you know, I, I kind of 
this was an interesting paper to me because when we counsel these families, I think this this actually makes you feel a little better when you talk to them about surgery that their risk profile is much closer to an AIS patient than you know when you think of cerebral palsy as a whole. So right. that's what I found uh, you know very yeah. impactful about this that we can feel a little more confident and express more confidence to the parents. Fusions, you know, T2, T3 to pelvis, you know, we discussed 30 to 50% complication rates, uh, medical and surgical. So it's this is very different, which is nice. That's a great comment. You are stressing the main idea. Craig, what's your experience uh, at Brown with these ambulatory versus non-ambulatory neuromuscular patients? Are you finding in your experience similar to Dr. Sarwahi? You know, I am, and it's interesting. You know, when I first came back, there was a little bit of a lull in spine care, so some of these kids had, had actually developed pretty large curves, and, and particularly with the lower curves, their trunks are so shifted, you're almost forced to go to the pelvis. And I've had, I've had the same experience. I would always worry about that. But actually, you know, sometimes they're so shifted over, they actually start to lose the ability to ambulate. And, and you know, if you, if you stabilize things, you know, they actually do better. What I liked about this paper is, you know, the temptation is, you know, the, the kid is ambulatory, he's doing really well, the curve is like 50 degrees, it's not too big a deal, they have no appearance concerns. And the temptation is to lump them and say, well, there's such a high risk. The families don't really want to do the procedure. And then when the curve is 130 degrees and the child is really struggling, then they come back and, and they want to have it fixed. So I think this is good evidence to, to kind of uh, use in discussions with families that, you know, if they're doing very well, maybe that's the time to, to fix a simple 50 you know, or 60 degree curve rather than let it get out of control. Because I think the complications are higher just for larger curves in general. You know, and just, just to touch on the plastic surgery, we actually, I just did a child with SMA today, and, you know, our plastic surgeons, you know, did the closure. And we, we found the same thing. We, we put the drains, they exit kind of about halfway up or towards the shoulder because we've had, you know, direct uh, inoculation from uh, from the bowels. So I think that's a that's a really good way. They, they like, the plastic surgeons like to put deep drains and superficial drains, and they stay in for a long time. So that's a really good point, uh, making sure, and they don't always understand what's at, what's at stake in the big picture. So so making sure you kind of take care of that, I think, has been helpful for us. And I agree, Sumit, it's been a really nice thing for our, our, our wound closures. Yeah, no, we've, I've really uh, enjoyed the working with plastics on these cases um, and having that partnership. We don't use drains routinely in our cases, but for these um, plastics cases, they want to put a drain in to help kind of decompress that dead space. And what I've tried to do is, with my colleagues, encourage them not to put the deep drain in. So they just put a superficial drain in. And, you know, I honestly have not paid much attention to where it comes out, but that's something I'm going to look for in the future just to kind of make sure it's not coming out too low. Do you guys, do your plastic surgeons put in deep and superficial drains? They do, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, so I, I, I still put in superficial drains and I pull them out in a day or two for my, you know, my standard cases. You know, it's, it really is, you know, uh, their whole concept is dead space management, you know. And what, what I was fascinated, you know, they, they do these wide releases and they really sew everything up in pants over vest. And, you know, you know their, their feeling is that really is the dead space. That is the problem, you know, the inoculation. So, you know, they put the deep ones and we always have a negotiation. I think they would leave them in for six months. I like them out in the day, yeah. so I think we, we kind of negotiate to get them out as soon as we can. Yeah, it definitely seems like that the sort of movement to involve partners with uh, complex wounds is increasing in our community, you know, pediatric orthopedics. just want to thank you for sharing your work with us. I think this is a, a really a good information and, and really important for when we're counseling families of uh, ambulatory neuromuscular patients. 
Uh, makes us oh, makes us all feel a lot better because our our level of worry on a 50 degree AIS case is is fairly low for most experienced surgeons, and so it's nice to know that we can probably feel that way for an ambulatory neuromuscular as well. Thank you. No, uh, and that's that was a basic uh, purpose of the study. Perfect. Well, I, I really, really appreciate the time that you guys have spent to discuss this paper further. And some of the discussion about closure and working together with plastic surgery is certainly an important topic for a lot of people like myself who are just developing a practice and making some of these relationships at my hospital. So I really appreciate that insight that you guys have provided. Yeah, this was great. It's, you know, this paper is definitely is going to have a direct impact on how I, how I talk to some of my patients. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Sami. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Sawahi, for taking the time to join us on the program today. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you about your abstract. Next, we will continue in our spine subspecialty day session and keep our moderators, Dr. Garg and Dr. Eberson, on the program a bit longer, but look at a different paper also evaluating outcomes in neuromuscular scoliosis patients. We will shortly also welcome to the program Dr. Bert Yaze from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, where he will discuss his abstract, Breaking the Dogma. Does UIV have to be T2 in CP patients undergoing spinal fusion for their neuromuscular scoliosis? In this study, the authors queried a prospective multicenter registry for patients with cerebral palsy and scoliosis who underwent posterior spinal fusion with segmental screw fixation and minimum two-year follow-up. Patients were grouped according to the upper instrumented vertebrae, either T2 or T3, T4. Analysis included 202 patients with UIV of T2 and 89 patients with UIV either T3 or T4. Preoperatively, the T2 group had smaller major curves by about 10 degrees, but similar T2 to T12 kyphosis, both right at 40 degrees, and similar proximal thoracic kyphosis. GMFCS level distribution was similar between groups with the majority of patients being level four or level five. The T2 group had longer surgical times, but similar blood loss. Postoperatively, there were no differences found between groups in coronal curve correction, change in kyphosis, change in sagittal balance, or PJK. The authors conclude that this study supports the idea that surgeons most commonly choose T2 as their proximal level in cerebral palsy scoliosis surgery. However, in doing so, it may increase surgical time without resulting in significant radiographic or clinical benefits. So let's dive right back into things as we welcome Dr. Yaze to the program. I'll turn the program over to you, Dr. Garg. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, I, I loved this study because T2 to the pelvis is, is sort of ingrained in my head, you know, for probably almost 20 years through residency fellowship and practice. But I, I love these kinds of studies where you try to take something that everyone's just heard and then, you know, see if it actually holds. So what prompted you to look at this? Is this, had, had you been stopping at T3 and T4 or had you noticed people in your study group doing this? Or I'm just curious for the impetus for yeah. that. No, that's a great question. And, um, you know, a couple factors went into it. First of all, one of the factors was even simply just a fellow saying, well, why do we always go to T2, especially when they came off their adult spine service. And basically, the kind of mantra on the adult spine side is for deformity is T4. And so just kind of then really taking a look a little bit into the literature, it I, I you know, I felt that it was uh, essentially something that's been passed down, but I didn't feel really that it was substantiated. The, the other thing, too, was that I don't typically bring in fluoro on my T2 to pelvises. I do typically just count from the pelvis up. 
And I found myself at times based on, you know, odd numbers or thinking you were at L5 and had a mobile S1 or something of that nature. And all of a sudden, when I counted up, I was at T3 at times, T4 and just realized, I mean, do I need to, once all my implants are in, go up and dissect further to, to put those uh, additional one or two implants. So that's kind of the impetus for it. And so ultimately, that's uh, what led its way to kind of doing this study. You know, why do you think there was such a dramatic difference in the OR time, 43 minutes on average between the two groups? That seems like a lot for one extra level. I uh, know I agree. And, and, and I think it even further substantiated by the idea that there was that an extra level cost you a day or two extra in the ICU. And it really comes down to something that I think is pretty common in literature when you or studies that you look at registries is, you know, there sometimes there are surrogates for other differences. And so uh, what we kind of have started noticing is that in some institution, it was dogma to go to T2, and in other institutions, it wasn't quite that same level of sticking with T2. And so what some of this, I think, does is separate a little bit out, you know, differences between surgical sites and potentially even surgeons. For this particular study, I, I don't put too much value on that specific difference. I think for me, it's the lack of differences in other areas uh, between T2, T3, and T4 that are probably, I think, the main point of the study. So, Bert, you know, looking at the, the results, obviously it's hard, you know, just looking at the numbers, but um, what wasn't clear, you know, in, in my own practice, you know, I think most of us, you know, worry a little bit about a, a PJK, right? A lot of these yeah. neuromuscular cases with a like thoracolumbar curve, a big C-type curve, you're not really controlling the scoliosis per se. When, when you're making a decision, you know, it's always hard to see that area radiographically, but but if you're really looking carefully, is there something you would look for where you'd say, you know, the apex of that ky proximal kyphosis is a T3, maybe I should go to T2? Or do you think that this paper just kind of says, for most cases, it doesn't seem to make a difference? Yeah, and we tried to kind of delineate that out because I, I will say that prior to looking at this study, my tendency was I would actually go up to T2 if I thought that there was more proximal kyphosis. And I wouldn't necessarily go up to T2 if I thought, the, again, if it, there wasn't as much kyphosis or if the curve was more caudal. So it was kind of how your mind was uh, going with that. But in, in reality, you know, the data would suggest that there was really no difference in either the sagittal parameters, whether it was proximal, because uh, that that's, you know, that one area where we talk about in the results, the uh, preoperative and postoperative PJK probably isn't the right terminology. It's really we're looking at that kyphosis above the instrumented level, both pre and post-op, um, and ended up calling it PJK. Uh, but the reality is there wasn't really any difference between those groups. I, I think that my, you know, I'm still a little bit more, if I'm dealing with a big sagittal deformity, I might be a little bit more attentive to trying to get to T2. But the data would really suggest, and even when we looked at the x-rays, that it didn't really seem to make as much difference as I thought it would. It just as, as a follow-up, you know, we talked about this all, I just did a, a, you know, a case uh, Tuesday where, you know, um, there's the whole, con I was talking with our fellow, the concept in the adult service, you know, of soft landing. And I'll often use hooks at the very top. I, I think they hold well. And, and in my own head, I sometimes feel like that upper end vertebra can rotate where it wants to be. Is this all pedicle screws? Do you think that makes any difference? And what's your preference for the upper instrumentation? 
we didn't specifically delineate out between the the instrumentation at top, but personally, I use hooks similar to exactly what you described. That study has been done, at least in the AIS population, looking at that concept, and there was really found to be no difference whether you choose to do pedicle screws or proximal hooks. So from that standpoint, I don't know exactly how it translates to the CP population, but I believe it's similar to you that the softer landing of the hooks is, is ideal, but there really wasn't any difference in this, you know, between these groups. So, Bert, how do you teach this now? How do you plan this out in, for T2 versus T3 or T4? Basically, what I still end up doing is, even though I think the study supports that there was no difference in the sagittal parameters, I still think that if the if there's some sagittal deformity proximally, I'll, I'll end up going to T2 and taking that extra level if I didn't count right. If the deformity is in the caudal aspect, I kind of now just even palpate where I think you know, I'm going to end up being at, and if it's uh, T3 or T4 or T2, you know, and I don't see any kind of deformity up there approximately, I'm not very aggressive with trying to get to that exact level. So I think from my standpoint, it's probably more that instead of exactly picking, you know, a specific level that I'm trying to end at, it's that I'm not very aggressive with trying to get to a specific level at TT at T2 or, or T3 if there isn't a lot of deformity up there. Oh, that's great. It's really helpful. What other dogmas are you looking to break now after this one? That's a great question. Uh, it does make a, a, a nice name for a title. <laughs> yeah, I like I like the story of, you know, I think that sometimes our residents and fellows, they really do. This is one of the ways they really push us when they, they can kind of look at it with a very different lens than than we do when they ask us these questions. And I wanted to be fair, you know, I think that, you know, this is probably the first study to kind of look at this. I mean, I think it's going to lend itself if people start to feel comfortable doing these additional levels to maybe a better look at it. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough volumes to actually separate out T3, T4. I mean, that's the problem with the dogma is that even when you take a big group of patients like this, majority still go to T2. So, I think if we can start feeling comfortable with going to other levels, then maybe we can start hashing it out in a little bit better way than this study. I think it's just really more an intro into this idea. And then the other thing is we still have, you know, in, in this cohort patients, we didn't look at it because we didn't have enough numbers, but we actually still have some some surgeons that go to T1. So, me, how, how do you handle things in your practice? What's your what's your uh, what's your strategy for these? No, I've I've always gone T2 to pelvis for GMFCS four or five uh, CP, you know, non-ambulatory with pelvic obliquity. You know, I definitely have have started stopping at L4, L5 in certain cases, and and we did a little debate on that at last year's annual meeting. That was a virtual meeting, but for I think for the typical you know, what we're considering in this paper, I, I had always gone T2 to pelvis, but as I said, this paper is really interesting to me. I did a case last Friday and, and you know, I took a, I took a baby step and stopped at T3. And I think it's, you know, it's going to be just fine. You know, when you, when you look at it, there's no reason I needed that extra level. Could I have gone to T4? I guess I'm just, you know, we'll take it one step at a time. <laughs> you don't want to overextend yourself. You want to be just dip yeah. your toe in the water. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So let's see how this works. And and move my way back. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is interesting though, and I will say this, right? You know, listening to you, Samit, it's like this idea that you know it it shouldn't make that much difference to not do one level, right? Like, but but I think that's what's interesting about the dogma, right? I mean, it's it's so ingrained in us that it would make you hesitant to want to go 
just one level shorter. I mean, there's not that much mobility in the upper thoracic spine for things to really dramatically change. I mean, I, I think I mean, what's interesting is caudally, people are so much more willing to, to go to L4, L5, as you suggested. Because there's so much more mobility down there, I think you can get pretty significant uh, deformities there. And we've obviously all seen cases where pelvic obliquity goes bad. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, when, when we were kind of trying to put the session together and, and some of the talks is, you know, there's so many ways to do this. And I think this is what's so much fun about this topic. Used to be, you know, when I was a fellow, oh, it's more than 75 degrees, you got to go front back, right? No one does that anymore. Then you have these really huge curves and, you know, there's a, there's a, lot, a lot of folks will do, you know, extended halo gravity traction for neuromuscular scoli. People do anterior instrumentation, the different, you know, grow a heady handle, the growing spine in a, in a neuromuscular population. And, and I think a lot of this is we just take what we know from idiopathic and we try to apply it, but it doesn't really always make sense. And that's why I think this is such an interesting kind of little sub subset of these talks, just to kind of see how people are handling the problems we all face. Perfect. Well, we really appreciate all of the insight from all three of you, honestly. It's, uh, it's great for a young developing surgeon like myself to be able to hear and have some conversation about these things. And Dr. Yaze, we appreciate you taking some time to join us here and shed some more light on your study. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, that will wrap up this year's POSNA Spine Subspecialty Day program. Again, a special thanks to our moderators, Dr. Sumit Garg and Dr. Craig Everson, as well as our guest authors, Dr. Vishal Sarwahi and Dr. Bert Yaze. Mm-hmm.